Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am so delighted that it is time once again for the Summer Sunburnt Series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are really excited about t- today. We're going to be welcoming back to the program Dr. Ian Paul. And Peter, every time we talk to Ian, uh, boy, do I walk away with a whole bunch of uh, wisdom from him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, his range, right? His range of being able to handle a lot of different theological topics, but then even biblical topics, too. Sometimes theologians get so specialized in certain areas, and I think that's great, and we need that. And sometimes people who study the scriptures get very specialized, and we need that. But Ian has sort of this unique knack for being able to cross both of those bridges and talk about both what's in the scriptures, but also talk about some of the importance of the theological themes, where they connect just a lot of different kinds of angles from which he can come. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say we're mostly excited that he takes our calls. <laughs> well, I think, but you know, Bill, it seems like that might be true of anybody, right? Like, I, you know, anybody, I'll call a store. You have an excellent point there. Hello, you have an excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I was. Guys, uh, you're really, you're really buttering me up this afternoon. Do you use that phrase? <laughs> well, that, yeah. I don't know if that's an English, an English phrase, or do you use it as well? Uh, no, yeah, we use that quite often. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I like okay, it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Love it. Good. Uh, Dr. Ian Paul, of course, is our guest f- for the full hour. And uh, as you go to his website, you could just uh, type in the word Ian Paul and you'll find out he was uh, a digital blogger of the year in 2017 and 2018. And for a very good reason, his content oh. and his books and his uh, writings are all spectacular. And I'm not just saying that to butter him up because that's this, this is what normally you do at the beginning of the hour, try to butter up the guest, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I, as I Keep read, it going. Keep it going. yeah, yeah. It. As I read your 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 biography, your your bio, I should say, it's so impressive. I I, I was going to try to let the listeners hear what it was, but it's too complicated. You've got too much going on. You're a Renaissance man. <laughs> Thank you. It is, but I mean, to to be fair, um, I, I don't want to take all the credit because. Um, I, 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 we probably talked about this in the past, but um, I, I, there have been particular moments in my life where, you know, you know sometimes where you, you, you discern what God is calling you to do by reading the scriptures and you, you, you read the kind of life that God's forming in you by his spirit and you read sort of general statements. But then sometimes God just speaks into your life. And I think, I think there's been about seven particular occasions where God has just said something into my life and, and it's led to a change of direction. One of those was the call one of those was a call to ordained leadership in the church and ordained ministry. Another one of those was actually, uh, I actually did a PhD in New Testament because I felt God called me to it very specifically, <laughs> which is a bit unusual. Uh, and, and recently, um, about seven, eight years, eight years ago, I just, uh, God, I just heard a word from God and the word was right, W-R-I-T-E. And I just, it was like, you know, when the prophets say the word of the Lord came to me, like there was sort of a, a weight or something that comes and, 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 and it just, it, it was, it was, it was God's word rested on me and it was a call to write. So I changed my pattern of life. I left the job I was doing and I, I always used to be a night person, but I started getting up early in the morning 
uh, to write. So I'll often get up and start work at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, that may be not too early for you guys. I know I think Americans are usually more early birds than, than we Brits usually are. So I, I so I get up in the morning and I write and, and uh, I often find that come nine o'clock, I've managed to write an article. So that goes on the blog. Yeah, I usually, uh, so. I usually get up about five after ten. <laughs> uh, Ian, he does get pretty growly if you start texting him at nine thirty. It's, it's uh, not a it's not a pretty sight. Uh, okay. Yeah. So Ian, I'm excited because we're going to talk about the Book of Mark today. And uh, at yeah. my Bible study this morning, we had just finished the Book of Romans, and we were taking a little poll as to what we should do next. And we all kind of okay. said we want to stay in the Gospels, and and I said, well, yeah, let's let's do the Book yeah. of Mark. So here we are, and now we're going yeah. to get started with uh, hearing from you about the Book of Mark. So. Let's get started. Well, I, 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 I love Mark's gospel. You know, people have a favorite gospel uh, very often. A lot of people love the gospel of John. In the early church, Matthew was a favorite. It's not so much of a favorite, I find, when I talk to people. Uh, there's several reasons why I, I love Mark. The first is that, that my encounter with Mark's gospel goes back to actually just about the time I first came to faith. And funnily enough, it came not in the context of church, but in the context of um, doing study at school. So we used to have a system where we did uh, what are called O-levels, which are now called GCSEs, where you take exams age 16 and then you go on to take A-levels age 18. And at age 16, you do a broad range of subjects. And I was studying, I opted to study RE, uh, religious studies, religious education. And it was just around a time where actually I came to faith myself. So I, I, I wasn't doing it particularly uh, out of a faith concern, but just out of a, an academic concern. And it was it was just an extra thing. And the syllabus for the exam was the Gospel of Mark. So I thought this was going to be good uh, because all we had to do is read and learn the Gospel of Mark on the one hand. And then you had to read William Barclay's uh, Daily Study Bible on the Gospel of Mark. And, and you just did that and then you sat <laughs> take the exam and you, you got an award for it. Um, although I think maybe it was a sign I hadn't, my faith hadn't quite matured in me. I only got a grade B rather than a grade A. So that wasn't, <laughs> a, good, that wasn't such a good start. Uh, but it, I just remembered that the, the vividness and the dynamism of, of Mark's gospel. And uh, a lot of people think that Mark's gospel is really simple and it's simplistic. But it's actually one of the things I love about it uh, is that Mark is much more sophisticated than we realize. And the reason why he's sophisticated is that he actually communicates, Mark communicates his theology through the way he writes. He doesn't make it as explicit as John's gospel, uh, where we have these reflections on, on what, what the symbolism of the gospel means. Um, he doesn't make it as detailed as Matthew, although there's one paradox with Mark's gospel. It's the shortest of the four gospels that we have in the, in the New Testament. Many of the stories that we find in Matthew and Luke actually are told in fuller detail in Mark's gospel. Um, but I love the dynamism. I love the way he does his theology through the driving shape of the narrative. And one of the things I've discovered this year particularly is the, 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 the subtlety with which he tells the story. And the reason why I've been thinking about that is because um, many, I, many churches around the world uh, follow a shared pattern of scripture reading, which is called the lectionary. And over the three years, it focuses on three different gospels and then it weaves part of the fourth gospel in with it. And so many churches this year are actually reading Mark's gospel. Uh, the lectionary has three years, A, B, and C. In the first year, A, you read Matthew. Second year, you read Mark. Third year, you read Luke. And actually in that, because Mark is short, we're reading a lot of John's gospel in between as well. But I've on my blog, I felt two years ago, God has called me to actually write specifically, do some do some exposition 
of the gospel passages that that a lot of Christians will be reading, a lot of a lot of uh, church leaders will be preaching on. And so, usually on a Tuesday morning each week, I publish uh, an exposition of of the gospel reading. And and so therefore, this year I've been really digging into Mark's gospel. And I and and again, I've just been finding greater and greater depths to it, even things that I hadn't noticed before in, in all my study. And just one example I, I found really enchanting, and I don't know if you've noticed this, that um, particularly in the first half of Mark's gospel, Mark always says, uses the word immediately in, in most English translations. Immediately Jesus did this, immediately did this. He, he came up out of the water at his baptism, and immediately the Spirit threw him into the desert. That's really dynamic. Most English translations soften it. They don't say the spirit through Jesus. That sounds a bit rude. They usually say it drove him out into the wilderness. Mark 1 verse 12. Um, but actually the word is, is, is ballow, from which we get the word ball. It's something that you throw. Um, but what I, what I realized this year is that there's a lovely little pun in this, because uh, in the authorized version, which many of your, I, I guess many of your listeners will, will use, um, the authorised version translate immediately as with the old English word straightway. Have you ever heard that that phrase used, that word used? I, I think we, we use straight. We yeah, straight away sometimes, right? In the yeah, we might, we might say straight yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, 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 I got up out of bed and I straight away went and made my, I made my breakfast or whatever you, you would do, uh, or brunch or whatever it is, depending on how, how late you get up. But but in the authorised version, that word immediately is straightway. Straightway, Jesus went to this. Straightway, he went to the wilderness. Straightway, he went to the Galilee. And what I loved about it is because the introduction of Mark's gospel, he introduces it in this way. He says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way and he will make a straight way in the desert. So John the Baptist comes to clear the way and he makes a straight way for Jesus to come and minister and straightway Jesus comes. So Mark has a lovely little narrative pun there. So because John the Baptist has prepared the way and, and he's, he's enabled people to have a sort of expectation that, that God's anointed one is about to come, the presence of God is coming back to his people, and John has prepared a straightway, and Jesus fulfills that by straightway doing this, straightway doing that, straightway uh, healing people. And it's just one that, and in fact, in, in the Greek of John's gospel, it's a similar word. It's the word euthos and euthaios, a straight way in the desert. And straightway, Jesus goes and heals people and he preaches the good news. And, and, and it, and it, and it ca captures, just in the way that Mark tells the story, it captures this extraordinary dynamic and power of Jesus' ministry in the first half of the gospel in the first eight chapters. So I've just come to love some of these little ways that Mark actually tells the story. Yeah, Ian, I would love for you to, to say even just a little bit more about that that style part of it. I've got a, a bunch of questions just about even who was Mark and, and when did he write and how does it compare to the other Gospels. But but staying on what you were just suggesting there, what, what can we learn about his style? Is it helpful if, if somebody's sitting down and reading the, the Gospel of Mark, for example, just within the English language, and he has a certain style about it that you're describing? What do we learn then about Jesus, about the story, about the narrative, about Mark, just simply by noticing the style that he writes in? Well, one of the things that I always say to people in reading any part of the New Testament, but it's certainly true of the Gospels and certainly true of quite a, a compressed story like Mark is, um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd reach for the, the book on my shelf, which is, has got one of the most important titles in it of any of the books I've got here in my library. And that is How to Read More Slowly, <laughs> because 
we, you know, we live in a culture which is just saturated with words. And the danger is we we rush through and we we almost, you know, sometimes in church we read stuff together. And you get to the end of the Bible and you think, oh, now what did that say? I, I can't remember. And actually, one of the reasons why I found learning Greek and reading the text in, in, in Greek has helped is it helps me to slow down and actually to appreciate each word that the, 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 the gospel writer is using because... Um, they're living in a culture where they they don't have that many words. Manuscripts were parchments were expensive. People didn't have possessed many uh, writings. Uh, writings belonged to communities. They were treasured, and therefore these words would be would be listened to really carefully. And the writers would choose the words really carefully. So I think particularly in Mark's gospel, I'd encourage folks to just just pause and to and to read carefully and to read slowly and just to consider exactly what why mark is saying things in the way he's saying it so again another example from from mark chapter one is um when uh he, mark gives an incredibly abbreviated account of jesus's baptism it's much shorter than the other the other gospels in those days jesus came from nazareth of galilee and was baptized by john in the jordan well okay that's really interesting isn't it because the the movement that's following john this movement responding to what god is doing is we're told from Judea and Jerusalem. So Jesus comes to this as an outsider. He comes from Nazareth of Galilee, which, of course, agrees with the other gospel narratives of Matthew and Mark about the, the birth of Jesus, which, Jesus, which, which Mark doesn't talk about. Uh, but, but he's coming as, a, as an outsider. He's coming as a new figure into this movement of repentance and turning to God. So he's going to be, he's going to be noticeable. He's going to be noticed. We know that. For example, those from the north spoke in a different way from those in the south. So Jesus would have would have would have stood out. And then uh, John baptizes him. And he comes out of the water. He sees the heavens split open, uh, which is an allusion to the Old Testament in Isaiah. Isaiah says at one point, oh, that you would split, you rend the heavens and come down, that the presence of God would come to his people. And Mark's saying to us, look, look, Isaiah longed for God to split the heavens and come down. Look. This is Isaiah 64, verse 1. Look, the heavens have split and, and God's presence is coming down. The spirit is coming on this person, Jesus, descending on him like a dove, which signifies God's peace and God's presence. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, what, what does Mark mean by that? What does, he, what does he mean in those words? Why does he record those words? And, and what's their significance? Well, we might just read that casually and say, well, hey, that's nice. God's affirming Jesus and kind of giving him a pat on the back. And, you know, I've often heard people preaching and saying, well, you know, God affirmed Jesus before Jesus began his ministry. You know, we need to engage in our life and ministry out of God's affirmation to us, which is true. But let's slow down. Let's slow down a bit and read Mark even more carefully. You are my beloved son. Now, where have we heard that before? We've heard it in Genesis chapter 22, where God says to uh, he says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your beloved son and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Uh, and, and where else have we heard that language? We've we've heard that language in, uh, again, the prophet Isaiah, where God talks about Israel, his beloved. And then uh, with you, I am well pleased. And again, we get into the servant songs in Isaiah. This is my servant with whom I am well pleased. And then, of course, we get to Isaiah 53, where this servant who, whom God is pleased with, then 
is wounded for the transgressions of his people. So on a quick reading, we say God affirms Jesus. When we slow down, we discover that what Mark's telling us here is that Jesus is a servant with whom God is pleased. Jesus is the son who will be offered as a sacrifice. Jesus is the servant who offers himself for redemption of his people. So I just I just love the way that Mark can pack all those theological ideas into just such a short uh, account of what happens at Jesus' baptism. Does that does that make sense? Oh, it makes a ton of sense. And Ian, yeah, I never want to interrupt you when you're on a roll. So we do have to take a short break. Dr. Ian Paul is okay. our guest. As we continue our summer sunburnt series, Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so happy to be having this discussion with Dr. Ian Paul. After a short break, we'll be right back. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. We're back with our Sunburned series. Dr. Ian Paul is our guest. And Ian, we're so glad to uh, have you on the program tonight, as, as well as having Barney on. He was on in the uh, first segment. Do you, oh, he was. Yeah, you had him. What was he, what was he barking at? Do you, can you tell well, us? Well, he's very alert. If somebody comes to the door or anything, he's, uh, he's up and he's like a, he functions like our, our doorbell. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's asleep next to me now, so I think he's, he's settled into the groove. <laughs> Good. So... Um, Peter, I think you got a question for Ian. Yeah, just maybe a couple of quick ones that you can uh, answer here, Ian, is in terms of who who was Mark, actually. I don't know how many people are familiar with him. He wasn't necessarily one of the 12 disciples. Did he get most of his material from Peter? Did he do the research on his own? So that's one question. And you said he wrote really early. Did that mean that maybe Matthew and Luke drew some of their material from Mark as well? How What was that relationship like? Yeah, I, that, we don't know for certain. And one of the really striking things about the introductions to each of the Gospels is that in the text that we have, it says, it doesn't say the gospel of, which is language we use. It says the gospel according to this person. Now, that's just a small detail, but it's important because we have a tendency to say, well, Mark's gospel says this, Matthew's gospel says the other, you know, Luke's gospel says that. In, in the early church, the people were concerned to say there is only one gospel. There is only one message of good news. But these four different four different accounts give us a different perspective on that same good news that same gospel message but uh, the early early church the early church fathers were very clear that the gospel message is is the same it's one message and we just get different nuances different angles different different uh applications of, of that one gospel message so it's the gospel according to saint mark none of the gospels actually name the authors themselves and that's slightly less less unusual in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you know, if you were wanting to focus on a particular subject, um, then it was more important who the subject was than who the author was. Um, and, and at some point, you might want to touch on, you know, what kind of literature uh, are the Gospels themselves? Because, again, at one point, scholars thought they were just sort of a unique kind of literature. But in fact, now scholars recognize that they, they have the same characteristics as 
as uh, in the ancient world, people write a, a life of Julius Caesar or a life of the Emperor Augustus. And in fact, these look very much like those those lives, those bioi. It's not not a biography in the way you would think of it, but they have the same kind of characteristics where they, they talk about the the, the the famous person's origins. They talk about some key speeches and key episodes in their life. In particular, they'd very often focus, particularly if it was the life of a general, they'd focus on the the death and give a lot of a lot of detail around the person's death because it showed what kind of person they were, how they faced death. And that's exactly what we find in the Gospels. So we don't know exactly who John, uh, who Mark was. Most, the, the broad consensus of scholars is that it's the person that we meet in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, we meet with Barnabas and Saul. Uh, they brought with them a person called John, whose other name was Mark. And then later on in chapter 15, Barnabas wants to take John called Mark with uh, um, Paul on their missionary journey. But Paul feels that, that John Mark hasn't been, hasn't been up to it and he's let them down in the past. So he's reluctant to take him with him. So actually Barnabas and John Mark go off together. And in fact, that's when Paul travels with Silas or Silvanus. Um, and, and we may think John, it's odd to call Mark John Mark, but actually, again, in the ancient world, particularly in the, the Roman world, most people would have had three different names. Uh, and uh, so people would have been known by one of those three different names in different contexts. So so most people think that that's who's written it. Um, again, the, 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 the consensus, uh, broadly speaking, these days, there's some debate about it because we can't know for sure. But but there's a there's a pretty strong consensus that Mark was the earliest of the four Gospels. And most people feel that for, for a range of reasons that most people feel he's writing probably uh, in the period around the 60s. And the crucial date when thinking about the New Testament is always the, the year 70, because that's when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem at the end of the first Jewish war. And so generally speaking, the big debate about the gospel is whether it's written before the fall of Jerusalem, before 70, or whether it's written afterwards. And um, th there are various debates around that, but scholars have different arguments. We, we can't know for sure. But what's one of the things that's really interesting is that we, as you've suggested, we do find a lot of material that's in Mark's gospel in both Matthew and in Luke. And so there's been a huge amount of debate over the last couple of hundred years about what the relationship is between those gospels. And one of the things that's really striking is that Matthew takes certain episodes of Mark's gospel and sometimes he, he often, very often abbreviates them or adds a slightly different angle to it. So, for example, when Mark tells the story of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, when Matthew retells the story, he has he also includes a detail of Peter stepping out of the boat. So adding a new perspective and saying, you know, I'll come to you. I'll come to you on the water. Luke also uh, takes Mark's story, sometimes adapts them and interprets them because Luke is writing, appears to be writing for a more Gentile audience. So sometimes he has to try and make sense of things in, in different terms. But one of the things that's really striking about the three gospels, those three gospels, the the, what are called the synoptic gospels because they they seem to share their outlook uh, they have a, a singular optic a singular eye they look through is that matthew and luke never agree with each other against mark and that's pretty strong evidence to say that mark was earliest and that and that they're drawing some of the material fr from the gospel does that does that answer your question peter it does indeed it's so um, interesting now, yeah and we it, are it is in, yeah sorry no, no no we're just up against another break and I'm just loving this discussion. Dr. Ian Paul is our guest, and we're talking about the book of Mark today. And so we are going to take a break and come back. And I know there's lots of questions I have, Peter, and you probably have some as well. I was thinking that uh, the book of Mark is uh, the one gospel that has no 
genealogy in its in its the way it starts. And is it because the Gentiles wouldn't have been interested in in lineage? Maybe we'll start with that when we get back. Okay. You're listening uh, to the Sunbird series with uh, Dr. Peter Kaffner. Again, our guest is Dr. Ian Paul. We'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. We're so glad to have Dr. Ian Paul as our guest today on the Sunburnt series and Right before the break, we were talking about the fact that the book of Mark, which is the topic that we're discussing today, um, does not start with a genealogy. And I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I'd always gravitate toward that gospel because of that very reason. I didn't have to try to plow through the genealogy. And I was thinking, is it <laughs> was it because the, the Gentiles would not have been interested in that lineage? Um, no, I don't think that's a, that's the particular reason, because actually I think Luke is writing for a largely Gentile audience. Matthew, I think, is largely writing for a, Jew, a more Jewish audience, uh, and they both have genealogies in them. And actually, in the in the ancient world, uh, outside Jewish culture, in the Roman world, lineage was also uh, really important. So I don't think that's the reason. Um, and there's a sense in which I, I, I often say to folk, you know, I'm I'm really happy sometimes saying, Do you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And one of the things that I worry about scholarship is a determination always to provide an answer. And, you know, sometimes uh, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that um, the only reason we have the assured results of modern scholarship is because the person who actually wrote the text isn't here. And so we can't blow the gaff. In other words, (laughs) scholars... Scholars can say things really certainly and definitely say this must be the reason for it. When do you know what what they're actually doing is speculating a bit. So I don't think I have an answer to that question, but it does for me. It highlights something really important about the Gospels, because, again, I think people are really skeptical about um, the story, the story of Jesus, the stories in the Gospels. They'd say, well, how come? Mark's gospel doesn't include a genealogy and then Matthew and Luke do. And how come, how come uh, the fourth gospel includes the raising of Lazarus? That's a really important event. How come the other gospels don't mention this, you see? And and that's a perennial question. And the the simple answer is this, that when the the gospel writers were writing the gospels, they were limited. They they, They were limited by the length of a parchment. They were limited by how much their audience would read in one go. They were limited by the expense of employing a scribe to write this stuff. So when we read the Gospels, we've got to recognize that each Gospel writer is choosing very carefully what they want to include and what what they think other people, either they can read elsewhere or that, uh, you know, isn't important for them, for their purposes. So each of the Gospel writers is wanting to portray Jesus in a particular way, and they have their own particular emphasis. Now, one gloss on that, I would say, is that I've been studying John's gospel a lot as well. I used to teach on the gospel of John, the fourth gospel. And I'm convinced by the argument of one particular UK scholar called Richard Borkham. He argues that you can see at various points, John's gospel appears to assume 
the writer appears to assume that people have already read Mark. So there you've already got uh, an explanation of why there is stuff that is in Mark and is, or isn't in synoptics and isn't in, in the fourth gospel. Because he says, hey, you've already read that elsewhere. In fact, there's only one episode which occurs in all four gospels. Apart from the crucifixion account, there's only one apart one of Jesus' miracles that occurs in all four gospels. Do you guys know what it is? I'm stuck. Stop. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's the feeding of the 5,000. This feeding of the 5,000 occurs in uh, John chapter 6 and also occurs in Mark chapter 6, and we also find it in, in, in Matthew and Luke. And it's just striking to notice there's only one. Well, the gospel writers must have felt that was a pretty important episode, telling us about Jesus, who Jesus was. But given that there's only one episode in all four gospels, then rather than saying, hey, why aren't why don't they all say the same thing? We actually need to pay attention both to what they what they do say carefully and how they say things in their own way and why it is they select the material that they do. And we, we know we can see that story the stories about Jesus were circulating, I think not just by word of mouth, but also by people writing things down and, and, and keeping a record of things as well. That's why I think Luke introduces his gospel by talking about people who are keepers of the word from the very beginning. But what that means is when you do have episodes in the different gospels, it's really interesting to read the different accounts together and see the different emphases. So this is one of the things when I'm, when I'm teaching on, on Mark's gospel, this is one of the exercises I do. And one of the great episodes to do that is in Mark chapter five. So we have in Mark chapter five, we have the story of the Gerasene demoniac. Then we have the story of Jairus's daughter, who, who's sick, the, the Jairus, the synagogue ruler. And then we have uh, interweave within that the story of the woman with the issue of blood who who wants to touch Jesus. And, and, and one of the things I love about this is there's so many in Mark's gospel, so many little eyewitness details. I don't think you've ever noticed this, the little details, little unnecessary details that Mark includes. So, again, you guys can tell me this. When In, in, in Mark chapter 4, um, Jesus has been teaching all day and he's tired and he, he gets in the boat and they, like the disciple, they push off in the boat and Jesus falls asleep. And what does he put his head on? A cushion. cushion. He puts his head on a cushion. How do we know that? Only Mark's gospel includes that little detail. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's fantastic. I'm thinking, why, why, is, why, does, why does Mark mention that? What's the theological significance of a cushion? And the answer is nothing at all. Why does he include it? He includes it because it happened. Mind you, I, I do wonder, I think to myself, who put the cushion there? Was it already there? <laughs> do you know, when Jesus finished teaching, did he see a cushion on the side? He'd pick it up and think, hey, I'm going to need that. I'm tired. I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. But this comes back, Peter, to your question. You know, how John Mark wasn't one of the 12. So how, how did he know all this stuff? And I think the fact that he includes these little eyewitness details. Oh, here's another one I love. In, in, in Mark chapter 6, in the, in the uh, feeding of the 5,000, where do the people sit down? Do you remember? On the I'm hillside? Test, I'm really testing you guys. You I? are. The, I feel like I have Jeopardy for 2,000 <laughs> right yeah. now, Ian. He, he, the, the, he's, they, they're seated in 50s and 100s. They're seated on the green grass, Mark 6 tells us. Now, why is that significant? Because in Galilee in the summer, it gets hot. And by April, May time, the grass has gone brown. So the fact he tells us it's in the, they sit on the green grass, he it tells us that this happened in the spring. Why is it included? Because someone who was there 
just know they, they remember they can see it in their mind's eye and they notice that the grass was green that people sat on and that's significant in that part of the world i guess it is in in, in parts of your world as well in england the grass is always green because it rains all the time uh so but if you live in a country where it doesn't rain much in the summer that's a really significant detail and of course then the fourth gospel tells us it happened around the passover which is in spring so that's an, just another example of the way that the accounts kind of complement each other and we, we see the, the, the depiction in, in, of the same events from different angles. Now, another great example, Mark chapter five. And again, if you read Mark chapter five with the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, I've just got them up on my computer screen here as a parallel. And uh, Luke says they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. OK, fine. So he's given some good geographical detail. Matthew expands that a little bit when they came to the other side, to the country of the, of the Gadarenes, he calls it a variation on the term. The other side of what? Then we then we look at the Mark's gospel and he says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he come out of the boat there, they met among the tombs of man with an unclean spirit. So actually, when you compare the three gospel accounts of this same episode, you can see that Mark's got detail. He mentions the sea. He mentions crossing. And boy, Mark makes a big deal of boats. He has boats everywhere. Jesus gets into boats. He, he just goes to sleep in boats. He, <laughs> he walks across the sea to boats. And he actually actually crosses the north of Galilee, the north of the Sea of Galilee, eight times backwards and forwards. And that's part of the evidence which suggests that Mark is relying on Simon Peter the fisherman for his eyewitness account. And I think you see, when you look at the, the, the text really carefully and you see lots and lots of kind of superfluous little eyewitness details and what's a very compressed account. And you say, I can see the touch of an eyewitness there. And often you can see that the, the, the touch of a fisherman who notices the boats and notices the nets and notice how often they go across the sea. So, yeah, I think I think I believe the tradition that this is the Mark writing and writing up the eyewitness account of, of Peter. How does that sound? Uh, I'm fascinated. Yeah, I love it. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think, Ian, what's so interesting is that it, it really helps understand people understand that the gospel writers were writing to make sort of a theological point about Jesus, a certain angle of him, right? As as opposed to just sitting down and saying, hey, you know, this is quite the story that Jesus had. We're going to write a biographical account. And so understanding that they write with certain themes in mind and, and they sort of shape the story for that theme. Uh, how would you compare Mark's theme to maybe Matthew's theme, who seems to be writing just to show the Jewish population all the time that uh, Jesus really did fulfill the prophecy. So he's constantly stopping his story by saying, and this was done to fulfill a prophecy. It's it's really a different take on the story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And Mark does have that present, but it's not as prominent as Matthew. And one of the things that Matthew is doing, and he, he says this in, um, uh, we find this in one of the unique parables in, in Matthew chapter 13, where he says uh, a, a, a rabbi who becomes a disciple takes out of the cupboard old treasures and new and, and one of Matthew's concerns is to say that, look, this amazing new thing that God is doing in this person, Jesus, you know, it's the same amazing new thing God has always been doing through the Old Testament, through the Jewish faith. So Mark, Matthew is really wanting to hold together uh, the Old Testament and, and the new thing that God is doing in Jesus. And that's why he has these prominent, in fact, in fact, early on, um, numbers are very important to the gospel writers. Early on, Matthew has seven fulfillments of uh, Old Testament prophecies in the person of Jesus. So he, he's trying to say to us, and seven is the number of completeness. There are seven days in the week, there are seven seas in the ancient world, there are seven planets. So if you see the number seven anywhere, that's always about completeness, the whole of something. So Matthew is saying Jesus is the complete fulfillment 
of the Old Testament. He is that Messiah that's promised. And that's why he emphasizes that, Je that Jesus is completing and fulfilling the law, not doing away with it. So that's his particular concern. Um, I think um, there are several issues that come really to prominence in Mark's gospel. One is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Sorry, Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. Mark talks about the kingdom of God. And there's a real focus, again, particularly in the first half of the dynamism of the kingdom of God. Jesus strides into Galilee in Mark 1, 15 and proclaims the good news. The, you know, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is, ha is at hand. And that kind of sets the, the program for, for all Jesus does. I think a second thing that we find, particularly in the first half of Mark's gospel, is this dynamic power. It, we, immediately Jesus does this. Immediately he heals people. Immediately he, he drives out uh, uh, demons. And then in chapter six, he commissions the disciples to do the same. But Mark then interweaves. He's got a, he's, an, he's incredibly clever at weaving two stories together if you see two stories together in mark's gospel it's always worth asking why is he put those together so he jesus goes to jairus's daughter but he interweaves that with a story of a of a, a bleeding woman why why does he do that because jairus is a named important wealthy man the woman is anonymous she's marginalized she's unclean so she's marginal to the community and, you know, by putting those stories together, Mark is telling us that Jesus comes for the important and the respectable, but also for the unclean and the marginal as well. And he just he just does tells us this by interweaving these two stories. It does it beautifully. And then in chapter six, he does something similar. So this power, this dynamic that Jesus has been exercising in his ministry. He then gives that to the disciples in chapter six. And he, he sends out the 12 and says, you know, go and preach the gospel of the kingdom, go and heal people, go and preach, go and, you know, and, and, and sends them out. Then near the end of the chapter, they come back and report all the amazing things that they've seen and done. And what story is in between those two? It's the gruesome beheading of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas. So again, Mark is, is weaving these things together to say, yes, Jesus' ministry is dynamic and powerful and liberating on the one hand, but it's going to be at the cost of his life on the other. And, and we find that in the whole shape of Mark's. Mark's gospel is a, is a gospel in two halves. We, we talk about soccer, football. We talk about soccer as a game in two halves. I don't know whether you talk about American football as a game in two halves. Is that a phrase you use? Well, we talk about it in terms of quarters with a halftime. Oh, yeah, of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have quarters, not halves. Okay. In soccer, it's a game in two halves. And uh, Mark's gospel is a gospel in two halves because up to chapter eight, it's all dynamic and powerful. From chapter eight onwards, Jesus says, who do people say I am? And they say, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist returned. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him, yes, and the son of man will be handed over to the uh, uh, elders and the scribes and the Pharisees and, and will be crucified. But on the third day, God raised him again. And, and so you get this, this transition from power and success on the one hand to rejection and failure on the other. And yet in this gospel, God takes that rejection of Jesus and turns it into his ultimate victory. So I think Mark's gospel is holding together these two things. And that leads to the, the, the other, I think, dominant theme in Mark's gospel, and that's the theme of what it is to be a disciple. What does it mean to follow this spirit-filled, dynamic uh, uh, Messiah, reaching every kind of person, releasing everyone from, from, from slavery to sin, uh, to demon possession, to uncleanness from disease? What does it mean to follow him in his footsteps? 
but also as one who gives his life up as a ransom for many. And what I think one of the most important verses is comes in uh, Mark 10, verse um, 45, where Jesus says, for the son of man, he talks and talks to the disciples about what it means to be uh, a great in the kingdom of God. And he says, uh, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. So I think Mark's telling us the paradox of what it means to be a disciple, for a follower of Jesus, that yes, we, we receive the spirit. Yes, in some sense, we, we, we receive that power to minister to others, but we also will experience rejection and suffering. And we minister, we, we, we follow a crucified Messiah, and therefore we also experience that rejection and that hardship too. All right, we're going to take a little break. Dr. Ian Paul is our guest, and to this point, he has not looked at one note. So we're amazed <laughs> at uh, what comes out of his head. You are listening to the Summer Sunburnt series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are just so thrilled to have uh, Ian Paul as our guest. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Peter Kaffner and I have as our guest Dr. Ian Paul. We're talking about the book of Mark. We're loving this discussion. I, I love the book of Mark because you open it up um, and it begins mm. with his earthly ministry. Um, I'm yeah. thinking, Ian, does does Mark refer to uh, many Old Testament passages as often as, say, Matthew did? Uh, no, he doesn't, but he does weave them in. I mean, we saw some examples of uh, that just in the I, – I talked about him in – uh, Jesus' baptism, where you know this, the voice of God comes and says, "This is my, my this is my son, um, my beloved, with him I'm well pleased." And again, I suppose one of the things that we have to do with the Gospels is not just sort of slow down, read slowly, look at the words. Why does he say this? Pay attention. But we also, if I can use this phrase, we have to kind of tune our ears into old the Old Testament and and how those who understand and hear the Old Testament how they would what they would recognize in Mark's gospel I think that does raise an interesting question about who is Mark writing for but the same is true for other parts of the New Testament as well so I mean for example Paul when he's writing to the Corinthians it's clear that he's writing to a mostly non-Jewish mostly Gentile audience and yet he expects to be able to mention stories from the Old Testament and mention stories from what would have been the Jewish scriptures and expect them, well, to be familiar with it, but also he expects these Gentile converts now to treat the Jewish scriptures as their sacred texts. And so I think we can see there was a general expectation in the early Christian movement as it as it burst out from the confines of, of Judaism and, and spread out across the Gentile world, that, that there's a sense in which, a very strong sense in which Gentiles kind of became honorary Jews. You know, Paul uses the language in Romans 11 about the Gentiles being grafted in to the olive tree, which is the Jewish people. So I think it's a, and it's a really good challenge. You know, I, I meet so many Christians who say, oh, well, the Old Testament, that's that's just the Jewish scriptures, or that's just got what God used to do, but now we've got the New Testament. Actually, the New Testament writers would disagree. One of the marks of all the Gospels, and it sets them apart from all the other kind of writings around at the time, which claimed to be uh, Christian writings, but weren't accepted in the New Testament, 
one of the one of the, the features of the gospels always is that we find in them Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises to Israel from the Old Testament. So you you can't separate the two. You have to hold them together. I, I think we, I mean you asked me uh, in the break what um, what's one of my favorite passages and it's one one of them is the, we looked at a, a couple of weeks ago in the in the lectionary and that's the the story of Jesus uh, stilling the storm and uh, it, it's a really good example it's a, it's a great example of um, all the eyewitness detail all the eyewitness observations that that Mark includes uh, but also um, just some of the kind of subtle allusions to the Old Testament as well, which we just need to kind of listen out for. Um, so I'm just looking at the text here. It's Mark 4, verse 35. I don't know if you guys have got text uh, Bibles in front of you. It's always good to have a, a Bible in front of you, you know, when you're when you're on the spot. Yeah, like when you're hosting <laughs> a radio show. I think that's a really yeah, good idea. Like <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I, see, Mark Mark 4, uh, the, the, the first part of the majority of Mark chapter 4 is Jesus uh, he there's a big great crowd by the by the Sea of Galilee and he pushes out in a boat. And so the, the, the people sitting on the shore and the, the curve of the shore is like a, an auditorium. And uh, actually, if you if you go to the Sea of Galilee today, you can find a bay called Soas Bay. And, and people speculate this is exactly where Jesus was teaching. In fact, when I went there, uh, when I was studying at, at theology at, at seminary, the seminary principal actually took his shoes off and he walked into the water and we stood on the shore. And he read the story, the parable of the sower, uh, so that we could check that, that he, we could all hear him. He was standing in the water and we were standing, sitting on the shore. And yes, we could hear him really well. So the, the acoustics uh, work really, really fantastically. Um, so he tells the parable of the sower, then he, he explains it to the disciples and then says some other parables. And then we get to Mark 4.35. On that day. Oh, OK. On that day. Oh, it was the same day. So that's a little detail. When the evening had come. OK, so Mark tells us the time of day. Then Jesus says, let's go across to the other side. So, again, it's this theme of crossing over one side to the other side. And again, we might not be aware that where Jesus was teaching was the was the Jewish side. When he crosses over to the other side across the River Jordan, he's actually going into Gentile territory. That's where he goes across and heals the, 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 the demon possessed man. So, OK, so Mark's telling us already Quite subtly, he's saying, you know, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but you know what? It's not just Jews who are going to respond to him. Gentiles are going to respond to him, too. So he's just telling us that just by that little phrase. Let's go across to the other side. Uh, Matthew doesn't mention that phrase. And then he says, oh, they and leaving the crowd. Well, that's interesting. He's leaving the crowd. Well, the theme of great crowds is is, is something Mark mentions all the time, that, that Jesus' teaching draws a crowd. Isn't that interesting? We focus on Jesus and, hey, you know, people, people are interested. But he leaves the crowd. So being a disciple, spending time with Jesus means not just spending time with the crowd and talking to people. It also means spending time away from the crowd, just with Jesus on our own. And, you know, again, in chapter six, Jesus says to the disciples, come away by yourselves for a time with me, which I think for me leads to the disciplines of, you know, each day, each of us, if we're going to be a good disciple, we need to come away by ourselves, spend time with Jesus, spend time listening to the words of scripture as part of what it means to be a disciple. So I've only just got, that's just the first verse there. <laughs> the first <laughs> verse of the passage. Yeah. And then, and then it's amazing. Uh, he leaves the crowd. He took them in the boat just as he was. What does that mean? Listen, what a great little detail. The other Gospels don't mention that. Just as he was. I, I, I don't know, I guess. 
I, sh I should, what I said before, I shouldn't speculate too much, but I'm guessing that, you know, if you're a fisherman, you get dressed for fishing, especially, you know, you don't just wear your ordinary clothes. Jesus didn't bother. Jesus just got in the boat just as he was. Whereas the, 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 the disciples, they're getting ready to row the boat and put the sail up and everything. He comes just as he is. There were other boats with him. A little flotilla follows him. About. Isn't that interesting? Then the storm comes up. And then, again, Mark has this lovely detail. You, you could imagine that, that he's talking to Peter who's in the boat. The waves were breaking into the boat. The boat was filling up with water. He can see the waves coming over the side. And, you know, if you look at some of these boats from the first century, they do tend to have quite low sides because you've got to have a low side to the boat to haul the fish over when you've got a net full of fish. So you can't have a high-sided boat. So the water in the middle is actually sp splashing over. And then Jesus, again, only Mark tells us this, Jesus was in the stern. He's in the back of the boat. He's not bothered. He's asleep on a cushion. There's a fantastic um, um, sermon by Spurgeon, who's the great Baptist preacher. Uh, and he talks about there is a peace in Jesus. He trusts his heavenly father. He's not worried about the storm. And the peace in Jesus then becomes a peace that comes out of Jesus. As he says to the, uh, he rebukes the wind of the waves and he says, peace, be still. That's a lovely image. The peace that's in Jesus becomes a peace that he then shares with the world. And again, the same is true for us as disciples. When we have the peace that God gives us as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we have the peace, the peace of God, the love of God shed into our hearts by his Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, then what we're to do with that is not just keep it to ourselves, we're then to share it with the world as well. So, um, hey, I, I, I'm just, uh, that's just three verses. Yeah, that's a lot. That is a, a lot of three verses. And, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff there, isn't it? Yeah. Again, you see, this is just this is this is not a long gospel, but he uses he chooses his words so carefully, and they have, you know, such such depth of meaning. Yeah, but, uh, it's. I think that's just why I'm I'm just loving I'm loving reading through Mark's gospel yeah, this year. As are we. Thank you, Ian, so much for taking time to be with us today, and also to uh, get us excited once again about the book of Mark. I know I can't yeah. wait to get back into it. Thank you very much. All right, that wraps up all the time we have. Uh, our guest today, of course, has been Dr. Ian Paul, and that's the easiest way to go find him is uh, just search Ian Paul, and it'll take you right to his website, which is a... Uh, now, Bill, you're going to do a plug for me, weren't you? Of course I am. He's... Uh, uh, which one? Well, any of them, really. Oh, like yeah. Commentary on Revelation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or oh, oh, you you've come across my recent book. Yeah, Exploring the New Testament is out right now, and it's uh, one you're going to want to get your hands on. So you can head yeah. over to uh, Ian Paul, his website, and you can pick it up right there off the website. So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.